0: Kaylee, are you pregnant?
1: <laughs> I sure am. Still pregnant.
0: Damn. I'm just... Look at look at the belly. I know. Are you having contractions?
1: Sporadic. Yeah. Throughout the day, nothing to be excited about.
0: Should I bring out my emergency delivery kit? Okay. You could do it right here.
1: <laughs> hey, I'll sign me up.
0: You can show off your hymno birthing and we can do this delivery live. Uh, right here.
1: I'm game if she's game.
0: <laughs> okay. Let's do it. So I have this headline I wanted to share. It says, doulas are smarter than doctors. And here's why I say, in this country, with a little under 4 million birth, 43% of birth in this country is paid by Medicaid, Mm -hmm. which is an assistant program managed by each state based on income. Right. And I researched, how much do you charge average doulas? Of mm-hmm. course, it differs depending on right. location and services you provide. Right. I came up with $800 to $2,500. That sounds about right. But I think in Massachusetts, it's like more $2,000. Yeah, uh, 1500
1: yeah, $1, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Let's take $1,500. Yep. You know what we get paid for our global prenatal care by Medicaid? Tell it me. ain't $1,500. Yeah. We're Yeah. talking about 16 to 20 prenatal visits, staying up all night, Doing a delivery with or without you as a doula. Yep. Postpartum care for the next six weeks, we don't get paid that. Yeah. So I'm I'm saying you you're smart. Right. Because you don't have to have a malpractice, mm-hmm. six figure sum. Yeah. You don't even have to have billing company. Yeah. Secretary, nurse, mm-hmm. lease, space, medical supply, none of that.
1: Yeah. And it's surprising. I, I would have assumed that A doctor would make much, much more than that.
0: We're just dumber than you know what, (laughs) especially OBGYNs. We're just really slow.
1: I mean, not to mention if you are a good doula, you don't provide any medical advice. You aren't literally responsible for someone's life or two people's lives.
0: This is where I want to talk about our video from the last time. Laura Clary. Yes. Her doula. Without mentioning her name, this pregnancy and birth goddess, Mm -hmm. as she calls herself, I went through the list of her clients' testimonials, and I counted number of Instagram followers, 75 million. I said, holy shit, that's a lot of people. Yeah. Imagine if some of them or two or three said, do what my doula says to do, Mm cast the oil. Mm Mm-hmm. You can diarrhea out that baby
1: doesn't sound very appealing
0: but you know what with 75 million followers i mean even oxford dictionary may just turn that noun into a verb diarrhea now is a verb yeah diarrhea out that baby
1: i mean you and i had a discussion about this earlier the relationship that a doula builds with her client often by the time that she's ready to give birth is a little bit closer than that of her relationship with her obstetrician or her midwife just because of the amount that you they talk and, and it's in a different sense. So we were discussing this morning the fact that most of my clients, something happens in the middle of the night or they experience some sensation, I'm usually the first call. And they say, this is what I'm experiencing, is this normal, should I be worried? I don't wanna call my doctor, I don't wanna bother my doctor. Or most doctors aren't as accessible as you where, you know, you give out your cell phone. And then it's my responsibility to say, this is normal, this isn't normal. And a good doula knows her scope, stays in her lane. But there are people like this doula that could say, oh, no, no, you're fine. Your water broke. Don't worry about it. You know, take your echinacea probiotic and some castor oil and you're good. You don't need to let your doctor know. And that's potentially really, really dangerous advice.
0: So, which is why this pregnancy and birth goddess, right, cannot be a role model. No. Because there are many young ones who want to be just like her. Mm -hmm. Look, I can have those clients, right? Just like her.
1: Mm -hmm. I can
0: have all those followers and be. And this is when I said, first of all, you know, I am a huge fan of doulas. Right. No one likes and loves and supports doulas like I do. Mm -hmm. As a physician, as an OBGYN, And if I'm having another baby, I'm going to get myself a doula. That's how much I believe in it, right? Yeah. But we need better training and certification. Mm -hmm. I read one study which said over 60 entities certifying doulas. Yep. That's a lot.
1: Yeah. And each organization is different in how they do, do this training. Some organizations have trainers that they say, okay, I like you. I like your style. Go ahead and do a training. There's no set curriculum. The doula trainer gets to decide how and what they teach. There's other organizations that do have a set curriculum that the, the trainers are trained on, and then they go ahead and, and, and train the, the clients or the potential doulas on that. Um, but they all cover a variety of topics. There's no standard of saying you have to cover X, Y, and Z for this person to be prepared and be ready to go out and, and not only charge money and serve clients, but hold this really important role of that first call often before the doctor even gets called. So
0: I agree. So whether I whether it's Chun who brought up this idea or not, it's coming. Right. So doulas really have to understand some sort of regulation is going to come, mm-hmm. especially if you want that service to be available everywhere, especially in needed area. Mm-hmm. And people talk about how it's needed more with um, BPOC, Mm-hmm. Um community and others underserved, but it's gonna to have to be regulated and you're gonna to have to come up with a better standard and training. And when I posted this on few social media, I never said I wanted to train doula. Right. I didn't say anything. And I understand also that, and you know this, what I think about my fellow OBGYNs, we have a huge problem. Yeah. But yeah. that task is not something I can really take on. Right nor can I really do anything with midwives, but with doula, it's reasonable because we are working together, right?
1: Right, right. And it only benefits my clients that we have a positive relationship. It only benefits your patients that we have a positive relationship or you know, any of the other doulas that you might work with. Um, it just makes sense to have people on both sides of the aisle be part of this conversation and, and working to make things better. And you brought up the argument, too, of, you know, some people feel that regulating and 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 making it something that you need to certify in is going to make it less accessible to people to become a doula or to get the service. But the bottom line is it's not accessible now. Doula services are a luxury. It costs a lot of money to hire a doula, or you're someone that's looking for free doula support. Um, and, And then, you know, for people that want to become doulas, you're competing against people that are giving away free support. You're taking a training. You're maybe paying for childcare. So the system doesn't really work the way it is now. There's a lot of barriers for people to access support and to become the supporters. So it's not like we have this great system working now.
0: Let's go through some of the questions you got
1: Mm -hmm.
0: about doc and doula. Let's see.
1: Uh Uh-oh, where'd it go? (laughs) Well, one of the questions on our group this week, or it's actually come up a couple of times, is about headaches during pregnancy. Kind of, are they common? What are some red flags? And what are things you can do to help alleviate that discomfort, especially when just Tylenol isn't working?
0: So I think, first of all, the first thing, first question is, is the headache new onset? Mm-hmm. And if it is happening before 20 weeks, that is, it is of less of a concern. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about primarily migraine headache, which is very common. Mm-hmm. It could be migraine headache that's episodic related to menstruation and whatnot. It turns out that two out of three patients, migraine headache actually improved during pregnancy. Sorry. And then for the remaining number of patients, it may be kind of stable. and about 5% of patients, it gets worse. Mm-hmm. But if, if you have a history of headache, then I think really taking something is very important. We start with Tylenol. If Tylenol doesn't work, but before talking about medication, you know this too, many women are so afraid of taking anything, Mm -hmm. but I feel that your body is a good filter system. Mm -hmm. So you can take something like Tylenol, but it won't really affect your little one, especially if you're taking here and there. Right. So you start with Tylenol, and if Tylenol doesn't work, then it is Tylenol with caffeine, and if that doesn't work, then Fury reset, which has a third agent. This is the first line of therapy for migraine headache. Mm-hmm. Um, and then second line of uh, therapy, if those regimens do not work, then we can try short course of NSAID, like aspirin, ibuprofen especially under 20 weeks mm-hmm. the key is speaking with your provider and say hey I have this new headache or I have history of headache mm-hmm. can I take something and if you are able to manage your headache with medication and it's not lasting longer than a day I think it is safe um, the other reason that many people complain of headache is that they people stop drinking coffee yep. all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And if you were to have 200 milligrams of caffeine, which could be two cups of coffee, depending on whether it's homemade, Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks, you don't need to stop drinking caffeine. Mm -hmm. Um, And then other types of headache, like tension headache or cluster headache, usually are not affected by pregnancy. But the most common headache, it is migraine headache Mm -hmm. that people complain about. And, you know, on our post, often people complain, people bring up preeclampsia, which is really after 20 weeks Mm -hmm. so first trimester or beginning of second trimester we don't really worry about preeclampsia right so i think history is important Mm -hmm. and the onset and duration of a headache is important
1: another thing i think i see and i know we've discussed this before is the amount of stress that people have during pregnancy worry, stress can certainly, you know, cause tension, I think, and, and headaches as well. So I remember when I first started with pregnancy and was getting some headaches, doing things like guided meditation, um, trying to make sure that I was, wasn't was clenching my jaw, I was relaxing. You know, sometimes it's just a little drop in the bucket doing those things, and it might not make a difference. But examining stress and, and trying to to control anxiety as much as possible, I, I think would probably be helpful in terms of headaches too.
0: In most cases, whether it's headache, nausea, vomiting, anything that lasts more than 24 hours, I think it's important to speak with your provider. Yeah. But, you know, the main thing that many people have hard time doing is taking something. Mm-hmm. And headache, if you do not medicate in time, it's really hard to catch up. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Another question we had is about joint pain and postpartum. Is this something that's normal, something that you know could be related to the pregnancy or maybe an unrelated issue?
0: I mean, let's think about this. In most women, you gain 20 to 30, 40 pounds of weight. Mm-hmm. Your posture changes. So because of changing your posture, your pelvis, little out of alignment Mm -hmm. i think having back pain suprapubic pain hip pain are all very normal because your body is under stress Mm -hmm. and these the the joints are working at different angles Mm -hmm. right that along with other pains like hands Mm -hmm. copper toner syndrome which is very common in third trimester but we don't really know exactly why joint pain comes on Mm -hmm. but if I just think about as a layperson, we're talking about your whole body 24-7 mm-hmm. with added weight, added fluid. Why would I not hurt? Right. Just because yeah. baby's out, all of a sudden I want to be fine? I don't think so. It's right. like so much physiological change happens after delivery. Yep. I think it takes weeks mm-hmm. to recover. And rheumatoid arthritis, for example, there's a lot of flare-up yeah. after delivery. Mm-hmm. So it, there's no specific reason as to why this occurs, but I feel like many of my patients are complaining about it. And often I think why it's happening is less important than treatment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: By that time, where you can take, right, you know, sets to figure out and if it persists more than yeah. typical duration, then you may have to address it with a primary care physician. Right. But right. in most cases, it's not pathological.
1: Good. Awesome. Um, last question we had from the group was about retained placenta. Um, how often does that happen? What what is Or what does that mean, I guess, for, for people that don't know? Um, and then asking if a DNC is something that's safe to do after delivery, because um, that was the suggested Tr- uh, treatment for this, this particular person.
0: Yeah. I mean, that question I read it, she was asking on behalf of a friend, friend in another country.
1: Yeah.
0: Who the hell knows what happens <laughs> in their country. Right. But retained placenta, it is not common. So in most vaginal delivery, you know, many of us wait until placenta is completely dislodged and expelled. I think younger providers tend to be a little more active. Mm-hmm. Some people may say 30 minutes, others 60, 90. I wait as long as possible because if it's not expelled by itself, then there's manual removal of placenta. Which is
1: not pleasant.
0: Not pleasant. And whenever you do that, then the patient may need a DNC right after, mm-hmm. which means additional anesthesia may be required right. and bleeding. So, retained placenta by itself, it is not common. Mm -hmm. There are certain risk factors, um, say, patient who've had many pregnancies or trial of labor after C-section, so successful vaginal birth um, after C-section may be a a risk, so that placenta may be abnormally stuck to the inside of uterus, Mm -hmm. but it is not a common occurrence, but there are cases where we may have to do a DNC, it's usually within hospital stay. Right. Sometimes if patient has prolonged bleeding, it, there may be a fragment of uh, placenta that's left behind. Because sometimes, you know, instead of a whole placenta that weighs about a pound, there are little ac- accessory lobe mm-hmm. that may have been missed and may be retained. Um, but in this case, the patient had delivered like two months prior. Right. So that's an unusual case. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: it is, it's pretty cool though, that this person that lived outside of the country had questions about their medical care, was able to access our group and, and get some information. Yeah, Because
0: I have patients from 64 countries. Yeah. Indirectly, I will get these questions.
1: Yeah. I mean, it just shows what a great resource. The Doc and Dula Facebook group is. So yeah. Go join if you're not a member.
0: Did you, um, a new member from Berlin? Yeah. Yeah. This week.
1: Yeah. Lots yeah. of lots of new members this week. A lot of people from the West Coast. So we're growing, we're spreading. It's exciting.
0: And I, I was encouraged to see a lot of new doulas joined. Yep. Despite my comment about how I suggested training and certification. I feel like a lot of people get it. Yeah. It's just a small number of people.
1: Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people took that out of context without knowing what who you are, what our group stands for. So I'm glad that they're here to see for themselves. And so many of the, the suggestions that were made on that comment are things that we've already advocated for and have, have said is important. And, you know, you know, advocating for yourself, choosing the right provider, um, saying we need more midwives. So there's a lot of things that, you know, hopefully people are seeing for themselves in the group that we stand for.
0: You know, if, if I look at the, the current women's healthcare system, Let's say I have an old car. Addressing doula is like painting that car with a new paint. I can do that. Addressing OBGYN and midwife is trying to change that engine right. and whole interior. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that's going to happen within my lifetime. And this is why I feel our little project, Doc and Doula, will mix, make a huge difference. Right. But you and I know we need more OBGYNs. Yeah, current training program for OBGYN sucks. Right. And we need more midwives. But I think 14 states in this country, the uh, certified professional midwives are considered illegal. Right. That includes Massachusetts.
1: Yeah. And part of the way that change is going to be made is by the patients, the consumers speaking up and saying what they want, what they need, being advocates for themselves, doulas helping, working with doctors, working with midwives. We need to work together to make
0: change. I'm glad you brought that up because I feel not all blame should go towards hospital insurance companies, providers, and others. The public must own a bit of blame because you don't mind Shitty care. You don't mind lousy providers. So you go back, you complain, you don't do anything about it. That's why it continues. So, you know, I give an example about that very um, popular OBGYN in Andover. Mm -hmm. Andover, very affluent city. High cost of living, right?
1: And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of OBGYNs available to you within a 50-mile radius.
0: And patients went... Year after year, no one complained. His C-section rate must have been between 40 and 50%,
1: mm-hmm. right? Yeah.
0: But he didn't have to change because business was good Yep. until he retired. So as you said, the fault also lies with people. Mm-hmm. If there's demand for better care, change will be made. Right. And that's one of our missions, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. You need to advocate for yourself. You need to expect better and and demand it
0: one of the question was about can doctor can an ob kick out a doula
1: yeah so this was a comment on our one of our latest videos where we responded to the video from Laura Cleary and her doula. Um, one of the the viewers asked, is it possible for an OBGYN or someone on the hospital staff to kick a doula out of the labor and delivery room? Oh,
0: hell yes. Yeah. But I never, I've never done that. (laughs) I think, you know, I mean I have spoken to doulas, Mm -hmm. but I, I do have the same approach that I do with whether it's a nurse, my kids, or other grown-ups about a dispute mm-hmm. I have spoken with doulas that I was not happy with and I said hey can I talk to you for a few minutes mm-hmm. I speak in private about few concerns I have and one example is um, you know patient was I, mean, this, I don't know how this happens patient was pushing and I knew it was like at least an hour away right before she delivers And this doula was saying, oh, you're so close. Oh, you got this. You are so close. And I said, you know what? Let me talk to you for a second because we're not that close. Right. If that patient hears that, she's only discouraged. You could support her in other ways. Right. So I've done that. But I also know that some doulas have been removed Mm -hmm. and there have been other ugly incidents. But and, he should never come to that.
1: Right. And sometimes it happens before there's even any sort of dispute. It might be that a nurse has had a negative experience with a doula in the past, and you're not even allowed onto the unit for a reason X, Y, or Z. I mean, eventually you are, but you know, first as well, we need to go through this, this, and this if we all as doulas work hard to have positive relationships with providers and not at the expense of our clients it's not saying we need to go and agree with everything a doctor or nurse says just to you know what you know kiss ass but if we have those those positive relationships we're not going to get that gatekeeping of well no you can't come in until she's done this this and this you're going to have someone says oh you know, Kaylee, doula, we've worked with you before. We know that, you know, you do a great job supporting the client. We know that you stay within your scope and that you have a good relationship with our staff here. Come on in. So it only pays to have those positive relationships.
0: I mean, my patients with doula, we already know what we're going to do. But others, if it's a new patient and there's a doula, usually what I've done is just kind of talk. Hey, mm-hmm. what's the game plan? Because I do whatever you want. Yeah because as you said, that doula is there to support the patient. Mm -hmm. But I also have to kind of play this game as a team, right? Right. Um, And I think experienced, mature doulas know how to communicate. Mm -hmm. It's all about communication with the patient in front of nursing staff. And nothing pisses us more than a doula making comments about like monitoring. Or speaking for the patient, mm-hmm. or disagreeing with what I have to say, and that's when you're like, "No, you just didn't do that, did you?" You know, like, get out of my my OB room.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a time and a place and a way to do those things respectfully and and to maintain positive relationships. I think a thing that we have to remember too is. Oftentimes, yes, as a doula, we have a relationship with our client, but that client also has a relationship with their provider that they have built over the last nine months. Um, and if it's not a positive one, it's something that you should have been discussing with your client ahead of time about finding a provider that they did have a positive relationship with. But if they've gone their whole pregnancy, they've stayed with that provider, they they do have a relationship. So speaking on behalf of your client Never is a good thing. You know, once you ask for some space, have a a discussion with your client. How are you feeling about this? If they're not feeling comfortable, talk to them about what their options might be, and then encourage them to talk and have a conversation with their provider. Don't do it for them.
0: Let's see, another question I see, sleeping positions for pregnancy. Yes. What do you tell your patients?
1: I usually say if you're comfortable and you're sleeping, you're you're good to go. You can always double check with your doctor. But if it's in a position, if it's a position that is not good for you or not good for baby, you're going to be uncomfortable and you're going to wake up.
0: I mean, I think your body was made to sleep in any position. Mm-hmm. So if you lie on your back, of course, especially in third trimester, your big belly is going to press against on top of the aorta, vena cava, so it will affect cardiac output, therefore blood flow to the uterus. Mm-hmm. But it won't harm the baby.
1: And you're not going to be comfortable. You're not going to want
0: to be there. Yeah. So a large prospective multi-center trial, which means they had a plan and they did it for many months to see if there were any bad outcome in terms of small baby, stillbirth mm-hmm. and gestation hypertension and no difference. Mm-hmm. So I tell patients... Sleep in whatever position you want.
1: Yeah. Use all the pillows.
0: All the pillows.
1: I got a, a wedge for this pregnancy that gives me a little incline for when I can't sleep on my side. And that's been the lifesaver. So whatever, whatever you whatever can do to works. get rest.
0: And, and in most cases, in third trimester, right? You don't sleep for like eight hours. No. You get up every hour to, to go four pee. Four or
1: five times a night. Right? So yeah. I, th- I think it Takes you five. 10 minutes to get in and out of bed.
0: Question about reliability of ultrasound for weight prediction. That's a tough one.
1: Yeah. You hear this argument a lot on on the group of people saying, you know, doctor says, or ultrasound says, baby's this many pounds. I don't feel comfortable moving forward. It's, it's a hard thing because we know it's not 100% accurate, but it is accurate some of the time.
0: So there are 30 plus different formulas Mm-hmm. to come up with estimated fetal weight. And none of them has shown to be superior. I think if we use 10% plus minus, it's reasonable. Mm-hmm. I personally don't manage patients based on estimated fetal weight, um, unless, with the exception of a few. Right. Of course, if baby is 10% or less, mm-hmm. 10 percentile or less, so which means out of 100 babies, um, babies, one of the ten smallest, mm-hmm. or diabetic babies, mm-hmm. gestational diabetic babies with a ninety-plus percentile, ten pounds or more, right. maybe a reason. But if I, you know, ultrasound says baby measures nine pounds, I said, okay, it's plus minus ten percent. Yep, it hasn't worked out to manage a patient based on that ultrasound right. estimated fetal weight. Right, and also because this is where it goes. You know, we talk about um the uh, induction of labor mm-hmm. um because it doesn't really work i mean i just left the coverage today where i think there were four inductions all for um two of them for large gestational age yep. or a big good-sized baby two of them uh, elective induction for something else but we started 7 30 or seven o'clock this morning i left what 11 hours later
1: Everyone's None pregnant. of them
0: delivered. <laughs> right. One of them I thought, well, maybe she, she should go home because nothing has happened. Right. So induction doesn't really work. Right. So estimated yeah. fetal weight is, is not exact science. Right. You know, th- the way we measure most commonly, we measure the circumference of the largest part of the baby's head mm-hmm. as well as the diameter, abdominal circumference, and femur length. Mm-hmm. Using those four, we come up with a rough estimate. Right. I think at best is plus minus 10%.
1: I've, I have clients ask me this frequently of, you know, baby's measuring this. They're talking about induction. What should I do? The first thing I tell them is have a conversation with your provider and understand what your options are. What are the benefits and the risks of waiting? What alternatives might you have? But then I say there's, there's really no right or wrong answer. Everyone gets to determine what level of risk that they're comfortable with. As long as you understand what the risks are and what the benefits are and you have this conversation with your provider, you get to make the decision of what you think is best for you and and for your baby. There's no, what should I do? There's no right or wrong answer. As long as you are making an informed decision with your provider.
0: Um, Are we talking about induction? What are we talking about? I lost you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The fetal size based on ultrasound. People say, should I induce because the baby's measuring big or should I, you know, should I wait? And I say, There's no right or wrong answer. You need to have a conversation with your provider, understand the risks and the benefit, and also understand what level of risk you're comfortable with, because sometimes it's correct and sometimes it's not correct. So as long as it's an informed decision that you make with your provider, you get to decide what you're comfortable with.
0: I personally think that with increased usage of induction procedures, I think that probably is one of the biggest reasons why the uh, postpartum hemorrhage and transfusion rate has doubled in past decade. Right. I mean, compared to when I was a resident, I've never seen so many cases of postpartum hemorrhage and transfusion. All these long inductions right. really have not helped. And on one hand, how many people you know, your clients, if doctor says, you know what, why don't you go in for induction? They'll say, okay, when? Yeah. Instead of, okay, what are my pros and cons? Right.
1: I mean, it's hard when you get to the end of pregnancy and like you're... Like now, you want to go
0: in for induction? I mean, <laughs> let's go. If
1: I didn't know what I knew, I'd be like, let's do it. But yeah. I I unfortunately or fortunately know what I know. I know I'm better off to just wait, wait right. it out, let the baby decide. I would think too, you know, so many people now are having these traumatic, long birth experiences. I see it more often when they're in, they start as inductions and it's these days and days of you know being in in bed and not being able to eat and crappy sleep getting an epidural really really early in the process not to say that i think there's a right or a wrong time to to get an epidural but if you're going to be in bed for 3 days and not being able to eat that's that's a long time
0: i mean look our heart size of my fist complicated little organ four chambers lots of four valves and lots of blood vessels we really know a lot about their heart mm-hmm. Complicated organ, right? But we know that organ. Uterus, size of a lemon, mostly muscle, covering inner layer. I'm not sure if we know much about that uterus. Right. It's like mystery box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're trying to make the uterus do something. Mm-hmm. And I think less we do, unless there's a clear medical indication, right? Like maternal reason, high blood pressure, mm-hmm. uncontrolled diabetes, right, or Fetal issue, small baby, mm-hmm. or some birth defect, which warrants delivery. I think we should leave you alone. Yeah, And I don't know why there's a hurry. Right. And that's why you got to tell your clients, don't be in a hurry.
1: It's hard. It's hard. It's the last couple of weeks. Of, I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. I, I, I hate to see indu- inductions done unnecessarily. But just from the, the point of view of the patient, it, it is hard. It's, you know, it's stressful too, towards the end. You're so close and you just want that baby there and to be I healthy. I told
0: you I was not good at stripping membrane. <laughs> I did that. What happened? <laughs> Nothing.
1: No, things happen. I'm just not, I just haven't had the baby yet.
0: I'm awful at it. Hey, let's go to, this is an interesting segment you put together. Helpful, harmless and harmful.
1: Yes. So I get asked a lot about certain natural remedies for
0: for induction of labor, for induction of labor,
1: for a better labor, for all kinds of things during pregnancy. So I thought it would be good for us to go through this list and say which ones are potentially helpful, which ones probably don't do much but are harmless, and which ones can be harmful. So the first one that we hear a lot about is red raspberry leaf tea. Drinking it in your third trimester. I've heard some people say that it can induce labor and other people that say it tones your uterus to make your labor contractions more productive.
0: I think if it works, it's called coincidence. Mm -hmm. No data to say. I mean, if I go through all these and look it up in a reputable journal, or database, it will all say not recommended because of lack of data. Mm-hmm. That being said, I don't really see any harm. Right. If patient wants to drink tea, then drink tea.
1: The, the, the thing that I say to my clients is, it's again, it's not going to cause harm. Yeah. It's probably not going to do much. But if it means that you're drinking lots of fluids and staying hydrated towards the end of pregnancy, go. go for it. But if you don't like the taste and you're choking it down, then it's not worth it.
0: And primrose oil. Didn't Laura Clary use that? Did she say she did?
1: uh, I don't know about that. She said it's echinacea probiotic. But I do have people ask about evening primrose oil inserted vaginally towards the end of pregnancy to help soften and ripen the cervix.
0: Again, I would say if you want to do it, I'm not sure who's going to do it. If the patient, her husband, her partner, I'm not sure who's going to do it, it's not going to be me inserting that suppository (laughs) in the vagina during a regular exam. Um, I'm not aware of any harm. Some of these, I think people need to do it just because they feel better about it, right?
1: Yeah. I did read an evidence-based birth article about evening primrose oil. Um, And the bottom line was they really didn't find any benefit to it And I'm not recalling exactly what the harm was, but they did find that there were some side effects to it that were not great. Hmm. Um, So for the
0: mother or the baby
1: for, you know, what? I'm going to have to look it up. And I just remember because when I was pregnant with my first, I was under the care of midwives and they told me to do this starting at. I think it was like 37 weeks, they told me to take one of the gel caps and to mm-hmm. poke some holes in it and mm-hmm. then insert it vaginally before mm-hmm. I went to bed, wear a pad, and, and to do that until the baby came. So I was so, curious.
0: So the, the issue with that is imagine at 37 weeks, the first or second one, if you were to do it nightly, mm-hmm. right? then that's a problem because we don't do induction until 39 weeks. Right. So I don't recommend doing anything at 37 just in case it did something. Right. So there's a problem with it. Was it a certified nurse midwife or? It was a CNM
1: and I think it was because I I have gestational diabetes. They were like, let's, let's start you a little earlier.
0: Then I, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Next one is castor oil. That is one that was brought up with Laura Cleary. So people take castor oil to induce labor.
0: I mean, go for it, I guess. You can diarrhea out the baby. I've
1: I thought it could be harmful from wh- what I've heard. I mean, can it cause some pretty intense, you know, uterine contractions, uh-huh. dehydration, potentially stress for the baby?
0: I don't know of any of my patients who would use this because <laughs> they're under my supervision. Right. But I could see maybe some of our friends who are home birth midwives mm-hmm. and birthing center midwives. Maybe they will. Yeah. Um, I
1: had a client once whose whose membranes were ruptured. mm -hmm. Labor did not start for, I think it had been 48 hours or so. She was at a birth center. It was a CPM Mm
0: -hmm.
1: who said, you know, next step would be castor oil. Luckily she sent the patient to get an ultrasound first just to confirm baby was breached. So that's why things weren't, weren't moving.
0: Garlic and probiotics for GBS. This one where I have to say, first of all, we do tests for reason because we're gonna do something about the result. Right. So if it is negative, fine. Mm -hmm. If it is positive, then the recommendation, prudent thing to do is to go by recommended antibiotic prophylaxis.
1: Right, and that's to protect the baby.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you go through all this, and you're going to use garlic?
1: Mm-hmm. No. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think the midwife who recommended that, probably because she didn't have access to antibiotics. Right. Isn't that true?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard that in many places before, um, in terms of kind of like a, a natural remedy for for GBS. Um, Another thing I've heard about, I was curious about, is people suggesting, I don't know if I'm going to say this, is it Hibiclens or Hibiclens for Uh treating GBS? No. No? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. (laughs) What if you're having a home birth? Can they give you IV antibiotics for GBS?
0: Now, this is where it gets a little tricky. Mm -hmm. If you're in the state of Massachusetts, home birth midwives are not legal, Mm -hmm. so I'm not sure where they get their antibiotics. Right. They can't prescribe it. Yeah. If they can't prescribe it, then patient cannot get it. Yeah. So, I don't know how that works. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's tricky because, you know, if you're a low-risk patient planning a home birth, which we've discussed before, is is a viable option, and then you get tested at 37 weeks and you come back positive and you don't have the option to do the antibiotics at home, kind of puts you in a pickle. So, I'd be interested to see how yeah, that's I mean, handled.
0: So it is, or if
1: even if they even test for it.
0: I, I mean, you know our friends. Yeah. I mean, we should ask Jessica because I think she really runs a solid home birth practice. I know she tests, and I'm not sure where she gets antibiotics. Yeah. But um, I think she actually somehow patients get them. I think. That's good. Um, and you know, so this is what we have to clarify. There are certified nurse midwives, certified professional midwives. Which Jessica is, but she's also a registered nurse. Okay. Yeah. So I think she can do a lot, but I know she. I ju- I'm just not sure where she gets right. the medications. So
1: again, it all mm. comes back to choosing the right provider, whether yeah. it's the right OB, the right midwife, the right doula. Make sure that you know you vet that person well and know what your options are in all these situations. I mean,
0: GBS is clear. Mm-hmm. It's what's recommended. Right. And you have to follow. Right. And if you test positive and you say, I don't want it, then like, gee, okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I remember researching this when I was starting to learn about it. And, and the, the the risk of baby getting it is not super, super high. But if they get it, it's very, very yeah. dangerous. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So I there's, there's no way to get around that one.
1: Right. Exactly. Let's see.
0: Acupuncture. Yep. I mean, acupuncture is just a great tool.
1: It's so relaxing. I so was surprised. So relaxing.
0: It's like I tell my patients, you know, they say, "Why do you get acupuncture?" I say, "You know, it's like smoking a joint. <laughs> I'm so relaxed." Yeah. So I th- I see how it could help. Yeah. Patients towards the end mm-hmm. get it once or twice a week just yeah. to relax. Yeah. To buy time. Yep. Um, whether it causes or starts induction, I know that there are no studies that showed right that it works, but acupuncture could also be used in some places for pain management.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. And even if it causes you to relax more and and relieve stress, we do know that removing stress can be something that can help facilitate the process of labor. So
0: Well, relaxation allows your blood pressure to go down, Mm -hmm. heart rate to go down, better perfusion in your uterus. Mm -hmm. Everyone wins. Yeah. So there's definitely a place for acupuncture. I think, the, the trend is recently um, like New England community acupuncture, where yeah. it's a larger setting. Yep. So the cost is not $150. Yeah. I, much I less. like
1: it there. I've been there. Yeah. They're, they're great. Yeah. Very relaxing.
0: Herbal teas depends on what kind of herbs. You know. I get asked <laughs> a
1: lot about hibiscus tea. Yeah. And if you go on Google, they say don't do it when you're pregnant, but mm-hmm. I know everyone loves the passion tango tea from Starbucks. Yeah. Safe or dangerous during pregnancy.
0: I said if you're gonna drink in modest amount, it'll be fine. Right. Whether it does anything. Yep. Probably not.
1: All right. And the last one, this is interesting. I've never heard of this before, but this new fad of vaginal steaming for fertility.
0: I saw a few websites for that and I'm not really I don't really understand <laughs> it. I
1: don't I, I don't Who quite does either. that? I don't know. I don't know.
0: And how is it supposed to help fertility?
1: I don't know if the steam is supposed to like c- clean well, it out or
0: what. I mean, first of all, vagina has 30 40 different bacteria.
1: Right.
0: You want those bacteria to live there. You don't want to steam those bacteria well, out I've of I've
1: always there. heard everyone say it's like a self-cleaning oven, don't mess with it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: It, it's very true. So w- that's why once you take antibiotics like at, you know penicillin it kills mm-hmm. all the bacteria right. and you have yeast infection. But who who runs these shops? Is it spa, Physicians? I don't know. We'll have to talk about that one. We'll have to get some TikTok or videos for that one.
1: Yeah.
0: So, talking about all this, we talk about how to make sure your alternative therapy is safe and that you are with a correctly credentialed provider. It's complicated. Yeah. You know? Start
1: with start with your OB, your midwife, Talk to them about who they recommend. Yeah. If they, if it's a therapy that they approve of, um, and if it is, you know, you can go from there. To ask friends, family, ask to see that people are licensed and, you know, read. I reviews. mean, I have a list
0: of, you know, we have a list of chiropractors, mm-hmm. physical therapist, occupational therapist, mm-hmm. psychotherapist, sleep consultant, yep. nutritionist, dietitian. We have them all, yeah. but we vetted them. Yeah, you know.
1: Absolutely. So come, you know, doc and doula. You can find all of them. All of their information is is listed on our Facebook group, um, as well as a lot of really great information that they do weekly. Give away for free these live videos where they talk about so many of these topics. So,
0: I want to mention again about doc and doula. This name, and there's a reason for that. Yeah. Doc myself really believe there's a place for doula, mm-hmm. and given how broken women's health care, particularly for obstetrical medicine, if we were to work together without feeling threatened, mm-hmm. I mean, all the doulas could gather in this room and tell me how lousy OBs are <laughs> and what kind of problems we have. And I say, you know what, I agree with you. Right. And some of the doulas we have read about are so defensive about the comments I've made but if we were to work together, mm-hmm. what I'm saying is only way for doulas to be in mainstream is with support of us physicians and midwives. Mm-hmm. And there's a plenty of work to be done. And so there's a reason why doc and doula, the name sticks. Many people get it. Yep. Those of you who do not, there's no conflict of interest. We are like friends.
1: Yeah, It only benefits you know, us as doulas and our, our clients to... Ha- to form these positive relationships. I mean, there's been times where I've come to work at a hospital where they know me, they know the way that I operate, In the relationship that I have with the providers where, you know, the the client and I have gotten more freedom than if they didn't, where, you know, the the nurse says, okay, you have your dual here. I know you're good. I'm going to leave you guys alone for a couple hours. You do your thing. Or at a hospital where maybe routinely they're not allowing a second support person in the operating room, but the doctor vouches for me and the anesthesiologist recognizes me and I'm allowed in the OR for a C-section. So those relationships have benefited my clients as well.
0: Are you having any contractions?
1: No, unfortunately not. Can I
0: suggest something? <laughs> some of these alternative stuff? <laughs> as long uh, as it's not
1: vaginal steaming. Yeah.
0: Well. All right. So I'm gonna make sure your labor is filmed.
1: It's we, we were on it. We video. got a video. We have a photographer not videographer yep. coming. I'm very entire. excited.
0: So we're gonna show show the entire thing. I know. Right? You all for that? Entire thing. I'm good. I'm, I'm an, an open book. thing. I'm an open book. Okay. I'm going to show you delivering the baby, cutting the cord. Sounds good. Entire thing. Okay. Let's do it. All right. <laughs>